0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest in this episode is Nicholas Harrison, the author of Our Civilizing Mission, The Lessons of Colonial Education. And the book was published by Liverpool University Press in 2019. Hi there, Nick.
1: Hi, Roxanne. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Before we get started, Nick, can I just ask you you know, to tell us about where you are and how this past year now of uh, global pandemic has been treating you?
1: <laughs> well, I'm in London. I, I work in London at King's College. Um, yeah, I've had my ups and downs during the pandemic, like lots of people, I suppose. Um, it hasn't been all bad for me personally or my immediate family, but there have been some difficult moments for sure. And i um, the current phase of lockdown certainly. My children have found it very hard this time around. They're both supposed mm. to be doing exams this year, and that's all been a mess. Yeah, and it's been hard as well. This is the first time I've spoken to anyone about my research for about a year as well. So it's been very hard work in the university this last year.
0: I can imagine, and yeah, I think uh, some of the authors that I've spoken to, you know, depending on when their books came out, they just haven't had a chance. A chance to think about their previous research let alone think about doing anything new or making any kind of part and I feel the same way so mm, yep. um so yeah I, I completely relate to, to what you're saying about that could you tell our listeners a little bit about what got you interested originally in uh, in working on the French colonial world
1: well I studied French and German as an undergraduate um and you know the third year was spent abroad by everyone I had traveled very little really growing up for various reasons um hadn't spent much time at all in France but on there was the possibility of going to Tunisia I just sort of saw that box on the form and I'd never been outside Europe and that sounded interesting and I thought you know I might get other chances in my life to go to Paris for the year but I probably won't get another chance to live in Tunis for a year so that's Mm -hmm. what I did I applied for that and I I spent a year in Tunisia and, and that was a very important experience for me and got me very interested in in the Maghreb and in the whole, well, the history of empire and uh, the Francophone world in general. And actually, the, the year after I graduated, I wasn't sure if I was going to go on to a PhD. The Tunisian year being wonderful, so I actually applied for a job in Dakar, um, and didn't get it. And instead, was offered a job on the Gaspe Peninsula in Quebec, which m- may mean something to you, although it's several thousand miles away from where you are in Canada. <laughs> but I so, but anyway, I mean that also. You know, sustained and sort of broaden my interest in the in the francophone world and in empire. Um, I didn't work on that material at all at PhD level. I mean, oh. at that time, I hadn't studied it at all as an undergraduate. No one taught it. I was at Cambridge. No, no one taught that stuff. Um, had no opportunity there at all. You know, I was interested in other things too. Of course, I did a PhD about censorship but it wasn't about Algeria which it could have been of course it was more about Mm -hmm. kind of moral censorship and then what happened was I got a research fellowship I'd been in Paris actually then for a couple of years I got a research fellowship back in Cambridge and I um I don't want to say I lied about what I intended to do with my postdoctoral <laughs> project, but, um, but I wasn't completely honest about it. And I always intended to sort of start working on postcolonial and francophone material then. And the reason I wasn't open about it was that I didn't think I had enough to say about it at that point because I hadn't studied it formally. But once, mm. once I was in, that's what I started doing. And I'd, I'd, I'd read quite a lot of postcolonial theory, I'd read a certain amount of francophone literature. And I started work on that area really. Because I was interested in post-colonial studies and because I thought this was something I wanted to teach in the end, because no no one around me was teaching it. So that was really hmm. where it all started for me.
0: That's an interesting trajectory. And this focus on colonial education, how did that come about? How did you decide to write this book or start hmm. the project that became this book? Well.
1: I mean, what I've worked on has been quite eclectic in some ways, and I've worked on film as well. You and I first had contact in relation to the Battle of Algiers, I remember, many years ago now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've always been interested in, you know, the, the the kind of political work that literature and film do in the world, I suppose, and how people have understood that. And of course, censorship's one version of that. Censors have a view about that, and anti-censors do, too. Post-colonial critics have theories about that, both sort of implicit and explicit, which is what my second book was about in a in, in a sense um but then as we're all of us teachers as well as academics in the humanities and mm. um you know we're active agents in that process as well it's shaping who reads what and how they react to it or what they view and and so on if they're studying film um uh, yeah it was, it's it's an, it's another version of that it's just, this is not necessarily how i initially thought of it it's more that i realized that this is something that's unified a lot of what i've done mm. um i suppose it's also i mean i I could situate it in two other ways. I mean, one is just simply that a lot of what I teach is Francophone literature from the Maghreb and especially from Algeria increasingly. I got drawn more and more into Algeria um, in a way that a lot of people in our our field would understand. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, a, a lot of that literature, whether it's fiction or autobiography or diaries and so on, turns on the educational experiences of the North African writers who were made into french-speaking writers by their education you know so that work is constantly reflecting back on that so i just at a certain point that just struck me as as such a central issue in so much of what i was reading even though i had never kind of organized things thematically in that way and then the the final thing i'd say i suppose was that i was drawn into it as a way of thinking about teaching in the humanities and teaching literature even you know teaching french literature when it's a a foreign literature for most of your students you know mm. that they, I started to think there were parallels strange parallels in the sense between the colonial situation and my situation and in the in the context of um in a context where the humanities and um something like French discipline can feel a bit beleaguered so it's a way to reflect on those things too and on my own practice as a as, as a teacher you know and as someone who writes about this stuff as well
0: I think one of the things that I find most fascinating about your book, Nick, is that, you know, I saw it when it arrived, and I thought I knew what it was going to be about. Hmm. And it is about those things in some ways, but I hadn't anticipated the ways that it would make me think more broadly about education. And what it made me realize was that walking into your book, (laughs) that I had an idea of what you mean by colonial education and what the boundaries of that are. And I think the book really opens up the question of of colonial education in relationship to education more broadly. Could you, well, could you say if I'm right about that, but also (laughs) could you say a little bit about how that works throughout the book?
1: Yes well you, you are right about that and I'm very pleased to hear you say, say that. <laughs> On one level of course it, it's a book that tries to be about colonial education and about the, the specificities of colonial education and mm-hmm. particularly in the Algerian context and particularly as lived by specific people who then ri- written about those experiences but as, as I was suggesting just now I also always wanted to think about colonial education as an example of education as well if I can put it like that so there's a -hmm. I suppose the obvious way to approach it through post-colonial studies which in a sense where I've come in from but perhaps also as a historian which is not not my discipline is thinking of colonialism as uh, sorry colonial education as an example of colonialism a facet of colonialism so again I Mm -hmm. wanted to deal with that side of things to talk about that try to cast light on that but I also wanted to treat it as an example of education so a very you know an extreme and uncomfortable example of education but that forces us to confront some of the issues about the the normative thrust of what we do and that the okay. sense in which as teachers we are we're making choices about what our students read and that the faith we have to have I suppose at some level that that's that that we're doing them good by forcing them to read these things. So I'm putting that all rather crudely, but there's a sort of, there's a common ground there at a certain point um, that I was trying to explore. And a a lot of that, I frame things in such a way, for example, through talking about Saeed and so on. We may may talk more about that, I suppose, later that tries to show that I want to open it up. But a lot of the time, I suppose, I think some of the most important things I want the book to do, I want it to do implicitly through making people think about parallels um, and points of comparison Outside my immediate subject matter,
0: yeah, I mean, I guess another way of saying what I of phrasing my awkward question would be to <laughs> to say I didn't expect to be implicated in your book. And, <laughs> and I felt that way not in a I mean maybe sometimes in an uncomfortable way, but you know discomfort isn't always a bad thing um, mm. that that yeah, I hadn't I hadn't expected to think about my own role as an educator and what I do and what choices I make and mm. quite as intensely as I did you know, approaching your book, thinking that I was going to read about hmm. about something well outside, you know, what yeah. I do and what I think about. So, yeah, it was uh, that that experience and, you know, of reading the book is, is really quite interesting. I think.
1: Oh Well, that's great. That's music in my ears.
0: <laughs> well, it makes it very, a very different book, I think, than, you know, other pieces that I've read that do focus on, as you put it, you know, colonial education as a facet of colonialism or an aspect of colonialism or...
1: Mm -hmm. one of the Mm -hmm.
0: tools or something so that's there in in this book but there's something else there that that yeah that we've just been talking about so um and i do want to talk about the you know different chapters and you know including the the, that first one on saeed but before we we talk about them in in kind of detail i wonder if you could just sort of say something broadly about when getting into this how you thought about The parameters of this project, you know, um, I am a historian. So, of course, I'm going to ask you about like, you know, periodization and uh, things like that. How you think about the role of past and present in this project. And also just, you know, the different types of materials that you're working with, reading, responding to in the book. How those things came together and how you think about them throughout the project.
1: Well, a lot of what I teach is um, material particularly fiction, I suppose, from the late colonial period in Algeria. So some of the, I mean, it's relatively early Francophone literature, but that only really starts to emerge in a fairly substantial way in in the 1950s. In a sense, that's the kind of heart of the material. And, and in some ways, that remained true to the end of the project, although that material only really starts to feature very centrally in the fourth and fifth of the five central chapters. Mm. I don't really, I don't go beyond the moment of independence, really in general. I mean, of course, some of the material that I'm talking about is published long after independence, but it's reflecting back on that period, and um, and that's to do with my focus on colonialism. It's to do also, I suppose. Uh, with the limits of my knowledge of Arabic I mean I have studied that but it's I'm more self-conscious and inhibited about trying to study the post-independence era because my my Arabic is is so utterly poor (laughs) um I'm sure it's better than
0: mine (laughs) (laughs) I'm just starting
1: (laughs) (laughs) well yeah I found it very hard I mean it was it was an interesting that was an interesting lesson too discovering how hard I found it um but um yeah and it's also I think that in in post-colonial francophone literary field which is kind of my home territory I think a majority of people now you know work on very recent material and there's a kind of pressure in that direction so I was interested to go back to this kind of formative moment in the sense of the emergence of this literature Um, I mean more broadly in the book in the end it comes back to your question about the kind of duality of the project if I can put it like that I mean I I wanted to have a core of material that was circumscribed basically as Algerian there are exceptions to that but the core material is Algerian and from that period I was just describing um so that I could get a a reasonably sort of well so they felt I had a reasonable command of the historical context and could could um talk about things in a historicised way or at least not not talk about things in a way that would seem naive or misleading to, to historians. Mm-hmm. I mean, historians are, you know, figures who provoke anxiety in me um
0: I hope I'm not doing that right
1: now <laughs> <laughs> it could be worse um <laughs> they
0: provoke anxiety in me if that's at all
1: well that, that's <laughs> <Any> consoling <consolation? laughs> um I mean the, the the second chapter in the end has a much broader historical sweep as you'll have seen but what I didn't I I worried for a long time about what to do with that and whether to try to offer an overall narrative of colonial education in Algeria you know from the beginning of the conquest through to 1962 and I didn't try to do that in the end I felt there were other places that people could go for that that is you know been done um, well enough elsewhere already in in both English and French and I didn't need to offer that people couldn't find Mm. that elsewhere and instead of which I just took took moments out of that history in a way that's very sort of undisciplined in in sort of you know, in terms of historiography, but to draw out some of the idiosyncrasies and inconsistencies within that history, which, which were, which were important to what I wanted to, to do here. So it, you know, it tries to give some sense of the longer history, but I would say, I mean, there's a sense in which the, the central chapter, chapter three, which I think is my favorite chapter is the one that's most tightly focused on a particular figure and a particular moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've said that and that's in the heart of that sort of chronological period in the in, in the 50s that I was talking about just now.
0: Well, Nick, I certainly don't speak on behalf of historians in general, <laughs> and <laughs> but I, I appreciated that about the book that it, you know, references and touches on things. But it's not recapitulating work that we already have on the history of colonial education. It's sort of moving in other directions from that work, or at least that's how I, mm-hmm. I understood the book. That first chapter on Saeed that revisits Orientalism, you know, thinks about Saeed as an educator, thinks about politics and literature. I mean, it's fascinating for me because, sure, I think about Saeed, you know, (laughs) he comes up a bunch. (laughs) But I haven't really spent time sort of focusing on Saeed's thought. and, um, And then you're doing this other set of things and asking these sort of different questions. Could you talk about that—that that sort of decision to to focus on Saeed in that in that first chapter, but then also how you're hoping to, you know, use Saeed for your purposes, but also maybe um, contribute to what people have to say about him in and in a larger kind of obsessive body of debate and, and discussion about Saeed and what Saeed meant and
1: yes, sure.
0: to us what he really meant, <laughs> you know, all that.
1: Yeah, I mean. I started with that material partly, of course, just because I I would view him, as many people would, as a foundational figure for the entire space in which a project like this is taking place, you know, Mm. post-colonial studies, so-called post-colonial studies, um, that particular kind of attempt to think about the place of literature in relation to the historical phenomenon of colonialism and in relation to the discourses around it and so on. So all of that, you know, this is in a sense where where I came from and came into this material from. It's also a way then of trying to create these connections and resonances for people at, at the start who may not be familiar with um, the Algerian material particularly or not certainly not with all of the figures that I talk about, but to put it in a, a wider framework um, in that way. But it, it, it's also... I saw, I, I treat Said in the book as, I go back to the issues about his relationship to literature, that he, you know, he was a scholar of comparative literature. He seemed to be, you know, very comfortable with that affiliation, as it were, in in many ways. That That's where he taught. That was his primary disciplinary affiliation. Postcolonial studies as an economic phenomenon was based mainly in, you know, has been based mainly in English departments, conflict departments, kind of, you know, literature and language departments and so on. Of course, mm-hmm. all kinds of overlaps with history, but I mean, colonial history was already an ongoing thing in history departments before this became such a big deal in literature departments, if I can put it like that. One of the very common criticisms of, of Said was, uh, has concerned, his sort of equivocations around canonical literature um, associated with the fact partly that he seemed, you know, he remains very attached to it, that he obviously, after Orientalism, he, he started to broaden out. He took that criticism on board to a degree, tried to sort of broaden his scope, look more at writing from former colonies and so on. But I think a lot of critics have, have seen that as a kind of weak spot and in a sense one that might be explained by his own, colonial education in a sense, which and Mm. I I talk about his critical work, but I also talk about his memoir out of place in the book. And um, I suppose I want to look at that from a slightly different angle and see his hesitation around these issues as as quite well-founded methodologically in a sense, that I, I see him as hesitating for quite good reasons simply to brand certain literary texts as, as orientalist in a way that's indistinguishable from other orientalist texts now that's not to say it doesn't make sense to call them orientalist if you're talking about people like you know Flaubert or Nerval some of the french writers that he that he's attached to and that he talks about mm-hmm. but but he hesitates over whether they are have the same sort of the same sort of ideological culpability, if I can put it like that, that that he sees in in other Orientalist writers and including administrators and so on. And one of the mm-hmm. characteristics of his writing there is to have these big long lists that cut across genres and um, link literature to all these other other forms. And again, that's been very important to the development of the discipline. Mm-hmm. But part of him still wants to give kind of special treatment to literature, and I'm trying to say he maybe has some good reasons for that still. And so and that's addressed in that first chapter primarily as a as a methodological issue in relation to the relationship, I suppose, between literary criticism and history, say, or, um, or, or, you know, and also adjacent disciplines such as politics. And I come back to it more later in the concluding chapter in relation to questions of, of pedagogy.
0: I just want to kind of follow up a tiny bit, Nick, on this. Mm. The question of, you know, I guess I hadn't really thought about, even though I feel like Saeed is part of my own education, mm. I hadn't really thought about a few of these different figures that you that you look at in the book, you know, as educators, you know, like, of course, mm. that makes perfect sense. And I and I guess I wonder what that turn is for you. So there's the idea of Saeed's colonial education, mm. but then the idea of thinking about Saeed as an educator, like, where did that sort of turn come from? And what's the consequence of asking that question?
1: Well, I think, I, I suppose in a way, again, I want, to, I, want, I want to cast light on the relationship between different facets of his career as, mm. as a public intellectual, you know, and a political figure, as a scholar of comparative literature, and then as an educator. And so part of that first chapter is about looking at his promotion of the role of the public intellectual. Now, I, I admire the work he did um, in in that sphere and I you know I suppose I see myself as, as uh, sharing his political attitudes in that sphere mm. but I think there's one of the another hesitation in his work is over the relationship between that work and his day job as it were which is the te- teaching of comparative literature yeah. and, and that there's something perverse about trying to justify you know and ground the work of the the literary. The, you know, the teacher of literature, by saying, well, you can spend some of your time doing something else, which is a kind of political advocacy, <laughs> without it yeah. being clear why you need to do the teaching work at all. Why would you do that? You could spend all your time on the advocacy, if that's the real deal, as it were, if that's the more important work. You know, in in a way, I, I'm wanting to draw out some of the tensions there. And mm. in, in this, I feel I'm I'm speaking to people like me, who who's, whose day job is as, teachers and as people who think about books and ideas and films and so on, and who don't, don't have direct access to um, the corridors of power. And, and in a sense have chosen a career that makes that kind of access difficult, um, mm-hmm. even, even if one might wish to have it. So it's a question about the justifications of spending one's time on this sort of marginal and kind of luxurious form of education when, you know, when you, from a political point of view, there are other things you could be doing that would be certainly more yeah. direct and might appear more effective.
0: Yeah. See, and again, I feel implicated. <laughs> like, this is what I mean is like throughout the book, I kept coming back to that question of what are you, what are you doing with your life, Roxanne? <laughs> Which I know you didn't mean the book to be addressed to me in particular, but, um but yeah, I think that that comes up again and again, not that I would put myself anywhere near the company of Saeed, but that, Mm. that, uh, that, you know, just that question of, you know, how to do and teach, especially canon, right, Mm -hmm. Um, which I sometimes do, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my ambivalence about that, all that that kind of stuff. And then, of course, it makes sense to come at that question through Saeed's work, right? Mm -hmm. But I hadn't ever thought, I guess, about coming at that question through the fact that Saeed's work is also connected to Saeed teaching the literature. Mm. To, I hadn't thought about that part of his career, in fact, ever, I think, before that, you know, thought about him as a as a teacher, um, even though I think of the text as teaching me and teaching all of us, you know, that kind of thing.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly. But I, I talk about some of his very well-known texts, including Orientalism, including the memoir, but there are some less well-known interviews and essays and so on that I draw on where he talks about mm-hmm. um, his work as an educator. And he's, he's apt, as I think perhaps you or I would be too, to disavow that work in the sense of saying well of course I'm not a you know I'm not I'm not a specialist in education I'm not you know this isn't my field to make these comments about that when he's talking about pedagogy even though that is the absolute core of what he what he does and shapes quite fundamentally his relationship to the material that he talks about I first read orientalism and the world the text and the critic on a literary theory course you know and um, that was the context in which I came into it um and these, the initial arguments that I sort of go over here, as I say, are kind of literary theoretical ones in a sense. Mm. And I'm trying to explain why, from that perspective, way may have reasons to hesitate over what to do with this canonical literature, particularly whether, whether it's still worthy of attention at all or whether it's just recirculating ideological toxins, you know, and be better abandoned, to put it crudely. And it struck me at a certain point that a... Uh, a a perhaps simpler and perhaps more compelling way to explain his hesitations is that this is the stuff that he teaches Mm. and that if if you're going to make your students spend their time on it you know given also the disproportion between the time they spend with the book and the time they spend with you you better not think (laughs) they spend all that time reading their flow bear in order for you just to tell them at the end of it oh well it's you know there are these problems with it ideologically that can that maybe should be part of what you talk about but you have to think the book's doing something on its own of value it seems to me as they read it Mm -hmm. you see what I mean Mm -hmm. and so you've got to have a more complex notion of what it does how it acts on people and I think at some level to come back to something I said earlier you've got to have some kind of faith that there's something positively educational about just the encounter with that book despite um, aspects of it you may find problematic or reprehensible ideologically from today's perspective.
0: The second chapter of the book, Nick, is maybe the the most like what I thought I was going to read in the sense mm. that, you know, I think it covers some of the terrain that I I thought the whole book would be about. The emphasis in that uh, chapter at least starts out as sort of thinking through the the range of strategies and some of the like internal contradictions or unevenness of, uh, you know, colonial education, um, in, in the colonial context and, and, uh, and what colonial educators, the strategies that they used to, in some cases, be more responsive to like local context, to the life experiences and backgrounds and, cultural differences of their students, that kind of thing. So what, what are you doing in that chapter with respect to opening up how we think about uh, colonial education and, and, and kind of emphasising the, the problems inherent in that, in that system?
1: In that chapter, I mean, in a way, I suppose, I, my starting point in a sense was what I saw as background assumptions about French colonial education, mm. less perhaps in those who are actually really working on that as such than among those who touched on it in the context of wider discussions of colonialism mm. so and so that i mean side would be another example there in a sense education is everywhere in his writing but he says very little about it actually in his main publications mm. so you mean you could think that could easily be central to an account of the way that orientalist texts were propagated um you know their ideology was propagated through the text through educational institutions but he doesn't talk about it and so i think this is often this background assumption about how colonial education is working, you know, that it's a tool of colonialism and a dimension of the the mission civilisatrice, you know, in the the French context, Mm -hmm. an attempt to impose French culture, that it's condescending towards colonial students, to put it mildly and euphemistically, I mean, you know, racist, discriminatory, Mm -hmm. um, and oblivious to their identities. And that that phrase nos ancêtres des Gaulois is the the emblem of that this famous phrase you know that crops up in textbooks from from the third republic onwards and you know that's delivered to students irrespective of who they are and who their ancestors might be and, and irrespective of what their own ancestral myths might be you know in different corners of the french empire and for that matter in different corners of france as well and again these are widespread assumptions and i'm not seeing there's a wrong <laughs> but the, the, these are the kind of primary assumptions as it were and then the other thing at, at the same time would be that there's wide recognition that many leading anti-colonial figures went through colonial education including in the algerian case many of the leaders of the fln which was quite a francophone organization. I mean, Al-Mujahid, their main journal was, you know, there was a French edition um, quite a while before there was um, an edition in Arabic. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were reasons for that to do with sort of um, intended and imagined readership and so on. But it was also to do with the educational background of of many of those those people. And I think that's often registered as a kind of a paradox, if you like, these anti-colonial leaders were made what they were by a colonial education. But I suppose I didn't want to leave it at that. It doesn't seem enough to think of it as a paradox. And it's not enough either to think of it as a kind of unintended consequence, I don't think, because I think you then need to think, well, in what sense is it actually a consequence of that education? But you also need to think then about what you understand about the intentions, you know, and that that, that notion of the intentions of colonial education starts to, starts to get much more complex as soon as you look at the material in more, detail. And so in a sense, what I do in this chapter is to look at, I look at, to start with, at examples that t- support those founding assumptions, which may be the predominant ones for good reasons, you know, the, the kind of weaponization, as as uh, people say now, of, of education. But you also see all kinds of very strange inconsistencies in that history when you start to look more closely. So I quite often f- see people saying, um, you know, people were never allowed to study Arabic in colonial schools or to speak it, but that wasn't always that wasn't always true. The you know, the French um state put money into madrasas and you know, bilingual madrasas, and did so mm-hmm. well into the era era of laicité. And and there were always these fierce debates um among colonizers about about the risks of offering education to the colonized, because they were I mean, in a in a sense, quite well-founded anxieties about the effects that would have on the colonized mm-hmm. that it would give them, you know, it would give give them ideas, it would make them articulate, it would make them um, feel in a position to make political claims and so on. So it's just not true that, you know, French culture was in, imposed, far from it. I mean, um, you know, following in the footsteps here of, of historians like Issa Kadri, for example, as well, he says, well, peop- to, to say that the French imposed French culture um, on Algeria, is to, f- is to follow the propaganda of the mission civilisatrice. It did nothing of the sort. It barely touched a lot of people in all kinds of ways mm. on, on that kind of cultural or linguistic level or educational level.
0: It's really fascinating. Um, And I don't, <laughs> Nick, I don't want to, you know, make you account for the title of the chapter in some kind of interrogatory way, but, but you know, you brought up the Our Ancestors, the Gauls, and, um, mm. you know, the, t- the chapter title, uh, Nos Ancetres, Les Colons kind of turns that around but could you just sort of shed some light on like how exactly you're doing that and I mean you said it by talking about the chapter but I'm just curious about that the way you've turned the phrase and what what you are trying to convey by that title in this in the case of this chapter.
1: Yes I think um, I mean it connects in a way with the title of the book as a whole which is Doing a similar thing and it's mm-hmm. probably similar, similarly ill-advised. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> sure at this stage that these were good choices. <laughs> um, they're meant to be provocative. They're not meant to describe um, our relationship, you know, to this history in terms of a direct inheritance. My idea more was that by talking about our civilizing mission or nos entrelacs colons, that it it is supposed to kind of resonate with our anxieties about what we've inherited from the colonial era what what might remain colonial about um what we teach and how we how we teach it um and and so it's a kind of it's it's the the the, the title of this chapter is really supposed to be a kind of echo of that overall um the the overall title mm-hmm. of the book and with that um you know as i say there's questions about what, what we imagine we've inherited and what that might tell us about what we're doing now and why we're doing it.
0: I'm just going to admit that I didn't catch what you're doing with the title of the book until of course I read the book. And then I, Oh, that's what's happening there. Like that. Yeah. I uh, I more deeply understand why the book is called what it's called. And this chapter helped me to kind of think back on that in the third chapter, Nick. And again, this is talk about feeling implicated, teaching in a time of crisis, you know, reading this, mm. Um, this past week, (laughs) I got to that chapter and I was like, am I going to be able to handle (laughs) this? It it does resonate. The chapter resonated for me, just the title alone and and some other uh, ideas that you explore in it. But you're of course here, you know, focused on a particular um, Algerian author, critical of colonialism, but who was also an educator in that French colonial Mm -hmm. system. So can you tell us a little bit about Kaun and how you are working with uh with that figure who i teach i teach in <laughs> my classes oh, do the, you? well the diary you know i teach
1: oh yes okay so yeah,
0: yeah i haven't taught it in, in a few years but i was asked thinking about it to myself okay how how does this again implicate me in this chapter how do i need to teach <laughs> how i teach Kaun again <laughs> in the in the future anyway
1: yeah so it focuses on Mulut Feraun, um who was uh an Algerian um who he was born in 1913 in a small village in a small family and and in in a sense this is I mean the the book in a sense has three three introductions the introduction the sort of historical framing and um, um and the sort of framing through Said in a sense this is when I get to the kind of core material at last and so he's he's an example of one of these people who was taken out of his home culture and his home background through education and transformed. And, you know, so an example then um, to come back to that sort of starting point, the idea of colonial education is an example of education of someone who's transformed by education, which is kind of what we want education to do as educators, albeit, you know, in contexts that make it much less fraught than it was for him and less painful than it was for him. Now, he he was, I mean, he moved away physically for a while um, in order to train and so on. But he he chose to go back to his home region to teach, teach in small villages, um, stayed there for as long as he could. He eventually got posted elsewhere. And then in the meantime, he started writing, and he wrote um, his first novel, Le Chiste du Beauvoir. He wrote it in the late 40s. It was more or less finished by about 1948. He had trouble getting it published. He self-published it effectively in 1950. It won a prize. It then got picked up by Seuil, the big prestigious Parisian publishing house and so the second version of it came out in 1954 which is the one that's well well known now the 1950 edition is a is quite a rare book the English translation that came out um, a few years back now is a translation of that first edition of the first version I should say now that novel is not uh, uh, along with his subsequent novels is not really overtly Political. I, there's a politics in his writing, in that he's writing about daily life in a Cabul village, for example, and you know, in a sense, he's quite ironic about it at times. But there's also a fundamental level on which he's kind of dignifying it <laughs> and exploring it, and that was still quite an innovative thing to do at this time, say, so especially in the late forties when he's writing this. There weren't many people doing that. There's almost no one doing that. Um, so I think it's there's a positive politics to that, but it's not anti-colonial. And people who know him only through that novel or subsequent novels often think of him as quite an assimilated figure, um, quite an apolitical figure. But in 1955, a year after the beginning of the War of Independence, as we would now date it, Mm -hmm. um, he started keeping a diary, which, as you say, um, you know, you've you've been teaching, which is this amazing document about his life during the war and during which he's still teaching. And continuing to teach during the War of Independence meant that his life was at threat from both sides.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. There there was a boycott of French schools at one point organized by the FLN. There was a tendency, again, completely understandable for for anti-colonial nationalists to think, well, French schools are a tool of colonialism. So if you work for them, you're working against us. So there was a threat, understandably, from that side. There was also increasingly a threat from the other side because um, among the settler population and among their, um, I mean, the conservative settler population and their allies in sort of in the in the military and in the pro-colonial administration, there was a feeling that any Algerian who was working in a French school teaching young Algerian children was likely to be pouring anti-French propaganda into their ears. So then they, you know, getting threats from that side as well. And then, so as you will know, he in the end, he was assassinated by the OAS, mm-hmm. um, the Organisation Armée Secrète, this extreme right paramilitary pro-colonial organisation, um, just a few days, very few days before the signing of the, the Evian Accords and the the, the mm-hmm. final ceasefire. And his his diary tracks things right up to that moment. And so I think it's an amazing story. I think the diary is a wonderful and very moving document. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to explore in that chapter, in a sense, was his commitment to education, why he, when he was quite a successful writer, could have done other things by that point. I'm not saying it would have been easy for him to earn his living from uh, from, from writing, but nonetheless, he, there would have been ways out for him, but he remained committed to it. And the question about how, how we understand that and how he think of his commitment to remain as an educator rather than, for example, joining the anti-colonial struggle, you know, which again, I'd see a little sort of echo here back to what we're saying about Saeed and the role of the public ed- educate, uh, the public intellectual. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's speculation to a degree. Of co- I, You know, I've read pretty much everything he's written and tried to sort of Look for understanding through that, but there is no very clear answer to it in a sense. But there is what emerges, I think, is, is his sense that the education he's doing has a value, even if it's compromised in some ways by by its historical and political context, mm-hmm. and that he thinks his job in the classroom, in a sense, is not to express his political views, you know, but to offer his students. Tools to think with, and to offer them op- opportunities for the future. And I suppose something else I admire in his position, in a way, or is 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 that it's he supports in in the diary. He quite explicitly he's quite explicitly anti-colonial. So I don't know if I made that clear enough just now, right? Again, mm-hmm. you know, he's explicitly anti-colonial, um, explicitly in favour of independence. He's quite sceptical about the FLN in certain ways, but for, for reasons that now you know, at times seem quite well founded to me. Mm-hmm. And he's quite, he's sort of anti-violence and he's anti-heroic in ways that I find quite admirable and admirable in relation to gender politics among other things and mm. admirable in relation to the, the sort of post-war legacy in Algeria and the, the sort of glorification of, of the Mujahideen. And in saying that, it's not necessarily, I mean, I, I think I'm persuaded by the argument as made by Fanon and many other people that that violence was the only way that anti-colonial violence was the only thing that was going to bring colonialism in Algeria to an end. But I think that as an educator, I've chosen a different path, which is more like more like farauns than like fanons.
0: Right.
1: And that, um, you know, I, I admire that anti-violent stance. I think that education is in some sense al- allied with that um, or the kind of educational work that he was involved in. And that he sees his work as helping keep other values circulating, I mean, other educational and cultural values circulating. You know, even in the midst of a crisis, which makes many other crises look quite tame by comparison so whenever I gave papers under this title um teaching in time of crisis people of course it always made people think I was going to be talking about the present moment and um you know as you know as one could and again I wanted it to echo those things but it's it's also you know I guess it it gives you a sense of perspective I suppose on what you might be going
0: through
1: (laughs) or I might be going through in my luxurious position
0: (laughs) sadly that that title is timeless
1: (laughs) yeah absolutely
0: the next chapter, chapter four, Nick, you know, explores these other authors and figures who are so well-known, especially Jabbar and MME. Mm. And again, kind of looking at these figures who are in some ways, uh, not maybe this can't account for all of their work or selves, but mm. they, they did, they were exposed to a French educational system and that, you know, you're asking this question about how and why they were, politicized in part by that system so what are the answers to those questions in that chapter that you're that you're exploring yeah
1: i mean i explore that question across the last two chapters Mm -hmm. really and and it's in the last one that i talk more about what they actually did in the classroom and the ways in which that might be politicizing and also ways in which it might have offered them things you know That have a distance from politics in certain respects around the study of literature and so on. Um, I mean, in this chapter, the the fourth chapter, which is called "Unfamiliar Worlds," it comes back partly to what I was saying earlier about how how little colonial education there was really in in the colonies. You know, even basic literacy, as you know, was only about fifteen one five percent at the end of the colonial period after a hundred odd years of um, this discourse on, on the civilizing mission and mm-hmm. that kind of justification. But that's basic literacy. I mean, to get to a point where you're being published by say, in Paris puts you in an absolutely tiny minority. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I study these texts, these literary texts with my students, I mean, I think there's a way in which if you're reading a Francophone novel from Algeria, what you might expect to see is an, an account of this kind of constant interaction and a kind of métissage and a hybrid culture and so on. Whereas what you often see when you you know you start reading Dib's Les Grand Maisons Maison or Ferrone's Le Fils du Pauvre or something, is a sense of these kind of parallel universes really. Mm. You know, quite a radical sense of the the, the lack of contact. Um, between the colonised population and the settler population. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, of course, their lives may have been affected by it in all kinds of ways, but in terms of day-to-day contact, direct encounters, it it, it seems it's often quite minimal. And then the school is the place where that often happens. And for these people, they're in schooling for longer, they go beyond primary level and so on, obviously, to, to reach the point that they did. And Partly, what it's reflecting on then is their experiences of being in a in a tiny minority, a tiny minority, you know, in large schools amongst other students who are for, from European settler backgrounds, and how uncomfortable that often is. And um, one of the stories in here is drawn from Jebba's, um nude dans la Maison père which is uh, one of her final texts and one of the most sort of straightforwardly autobiographical, where she talks about this experience of being in the in the in the refectory. And how in this school, which he says, you know, was, was um supposedly secular, the in in the refectory, the dining hall, Christian feast days would be quite regularly marked by serving charcuterie or shukruit or various things that involved pork. Mm-hmm. And then when Jebar came into the room, she'd be they'd say, Oh, you should go off to the, the table for the Muslim girls today. So she's being this this politicized racialized identity being offered to her irrespective of whether she was a practicing muslim whether or not she um mm. you know what irrespective of what her dietary habits were and um yeah and they they sort of rebel on this occasion her and and uh, these these other young girls and say that they're fed up with getting worse food on those days <laughs> um you know they're getting fried eggs and the others are getting meat and that's not good enough and um and but it's it it brings a whole lot of things to light i think about the sort of I mean, it's a sense in which when the French, you know, when the people in the school say, "Oh, it's this sort of," you know, we're having um, charcuterie today. You need to go off to other table. They're trying to accommodate them in a sense. They're trying to tolerate them, (laughs) Um, but but in a way that alienates them and distances them. You know, makes them feel that they're the ones who have to be kind of for whom allowances must be made. It raises questions about the kind of Christian cultural foundations of French secularism. You know, it's not it's not by accident that pork is served. It's not by accident that there are holidays at Easter and Christmas. Mm-hmm. You know that Sunday is not a school day, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The, the school is secular in real senses, and serving, you know, serving pork isn't actually a Christian ritual. You know, you can say it's secular in that sense, <laughs> yeah. but 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 it 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 functions in a way that marginalizes the Muslim pupils, groups them together, gives them a politicized identity, um, and doesn't see in all of this that that it's not allowing an an Islamic or Islamic culture to function in that sort of diffuse way. So it's just, it's it's a way into talking about the kind of the general culture of the school, I suppose. And again, of course, I I do all of this thinking that has all kinds of resonances in relation to to, um, laicite in contemporary Mm -hmm. uh, France as well. Although I don't, you know, I don't talk a lot about the the hijab here, but it's, you know, I I hope it's got obvious resonances in relation to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly did for me as a reader when you bring these things up and, you know, as you kind of move towards the end of the book, and, you know, the discussion of, well, literature throughout but then, the you know, what, the specificity of teaching the French language and then, yeah, you close the book with this sort of question about and it's, again, it's um, the title the subtitle of the book meant something different to me once I was done the idea of the lessons of colonial education. I mean, there's like Nick, the levels <laughs>
1: that
0: <I have> here. <laughs> there are here—they're the lessons internal to colonial education as a system. But then there are the, you know, the ways that you know come back has where to where we started about, you know, how this book is a book about colonial education as a form of education and what it gives us in mm. terms of its potential for for our thinking about, you know, the function of education. More broadly, outside the colonial context, in the post-colonial context, which includes, I mean, all of us <laughs> everywhere, not just in Algeria uh, or France, but, you know, if we're talking even about that relationship that includes Algeria and um, post-colonial Algeria and post-colonial France, as well as other parts of the former um, and current French empire. Um, so, yeah, this is not really a question that I'm asking, but, you know, just in terms <laughs> of that conclusion about education's impact, you know, how you Mm. think about what to do with what you've explored in this book in relationship to questions of education in a more contemporary context. uh, Something you raised earlier about, you know, the, speaking of crisis, the humanities, um, you know, the canon, like all of these things that we're well, I am, and I think you are too. If if my UK Twitter is correct, <laughs> you are all also having these conversations. Yeah, how how the lessons of the book for you as a scholar, for you as an educator, for you as somebody who thinks politically and mm. acts politically in the world, like where, where do you end up by the end of the book?
1: Well, I mean- I, Small question. <laughs> <laughs> I could think that back. I mean, another reason I chose that, the title our civilizing mission is that i start off with an essay um in the introduction by george steiner called to civilize our Gentlemen," which mm-hmm. is a quotation from matthew arnold so again it's got a an, an echo with a longer history and with the role of education and he talks about the sense of crisis in the humanities and he's this is published in 1965 so it's quite a while ago now and um he he talks about the foundations of the the literary disciplines english you know particularly as studied in in Britain or in an english speaking country and then French in France and so on, um, and he talks about the relationship to the classics, which is not uh, you know something sort of particular concern to me here. He talks about its relationship to nationalism and then he talks about um, the sort of the, the third founding assumption as he sees it beyond this the close relationship to the classic, which is largely eroded, and then the relationship to nationalism the third thing is um, something to do with the kind of you know, improving impact of great books on the people who read them. Now, I mean, one of the big issues in the, in this book, of course, is the issue around nationalism. And that still runs so deep <laughs> through, um, through educational systems. And mm-hmm. it, you know, it crops up again and again. You see this in France. We've had it here again recently in Britain, you know, an insistence on what kind of history gets taught, the mm-hmm. idea that British values um, should be promoted, which, you know, means, <laughs> supposed to mean a whole set of positive things, of course, so, you know, one could debate what, what British values are and have been and so on. Um, and so, it's made me think more about that and about how hard it is actually to extricate oneself from that. I mean, the very existence of something like a French department relies on this notional alignment of a language a literature and and a nation Mm -hmm. i'm trying to sort of put inverted commas around the first two a's there when you can say what a nation is and that of course that's problematic in all kinds of ways but it does have borders around it in a way that the language and the literature don't the idea of countable separate literatures aligned with national identities you know seems increasingly absurd to me as it Mm -hmm. does with a lot of people so that's that's one thing i think it's made me think about more and how how one moves beyond that especially again in the case of working in something like a french department where on some level i still like the idea of teaching the cultural material and the language together and promoting the the study of the the you know the, of the language that i say is foreign for most of my students if not mm-hmm. for all of them the title education's impact is also a bit of a nod to the uk context where mm. um <laughs> you'll be f- familiar perhaps with the the research assessment exercise, uh-huh. in its current incarnation, known as the REF, and um, there are a set of requirements um, when, when our research is assessed um, centrally every few years, which is associated with university funding. An additional criterion was was introduced, not not in this current round, but in the last one, to do with impact, which was showing ways in which your research had um, had influence out, outside the academy. Essentially, I mean, you know, it's kind of going a longish. Short story short, and I suppose part of what I was to do here was to kind of reassert the as uh, absolutely fundamental and central to what we do the relationship between our teaching and what what we write about. So I suppose there's a level on which you know, much as I like the idea of influencing people outside the academy and have, have sought to do that you know in various ways in in my life and even within my career in a sense what what's central to me is is the relationship between all this time I spend reading and thinking about these things and what I do in the classroom. I reach more people in that way than I'm ever likely to reach through my publications, Frank. So it's 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 reasserting that, but that does involve then a recommitment to the kind of education that I'm involved in. You know, and so it's a chance to try and think what is it in this in this educational system, which is compromised in various ways politically in my context as well what is it that I still believe in in this? I don't believe in nationalism. I don't think that what I'm doing has a sort of close and living link to the classics. And so it does bring you back to something that, for which we now struggle to find a vocabulary, which is the, the benefits of the encounter with the text that we choose. And I suppose, I mean, if I can just work, make one final sort of specific point about that, mm. I suppose it's brought home to me that I <laughs> I don't really want to teach anything where my own mind is completely made up about it um, least of all if it's something that I think you know should be sort of dismissed um, and you know so I suppose because I'm very, it's made me more conscious of the fact that I'm choosing um, how my students will spend their time and that they'll spend a lot more time with the books or even with the films than they do with me and that I've got I've got to think in some sense that I'm doing them a favor by getting them to read this stuff that they might not otherwise have read mm-hmm. and that it's educationally positive that encounter in itself and so that's made me think about how and why I choose the things I do and brings me back also to some of those issues that I was thinking about You know back in earlier work as well about what the specific values associated with with literature and with film and so on might be and why you might want to study them alongside history alongside politics or or on their own at a certain Mm -hmm. it's helped me to think about the teaching of music from this point of view as well i'm going off on a real tangent now but it seems to me that the justification for teaching literature the most ready vocabulary for that now for many of us is political, but I think I should be able to come up with a model where it also seems to me still legitimate for people to spend their time studying music and making music. Mm-hmm.
0: Should
1: so, know, I mean that that and that has a kind of, of a value that persists, whatever else is going on?
0: Uh, I hope you won't take this the wrong way because I mean it as a compliment. But you know, among the many things that I didn't expect to to find in the book is like it sort of worked as self help for me. <laughs> Especially at this time. I mean, it's not that it's just in the past year that I've been thinking about like what my role is as an educator and the choices that I make. But I mean, I'm always thinking about that. But uh, more than I ever thought I would in graduate school, I just didn't really think about. What I was being trained—I mean, it wasn't what I was being trained to do it was to be a teacher, and then of course, my—you mm. get a job, and your life is entirely, almost entirely—at least mine was—you know—consumed by trying to figure out how to be a teacher. <laughs> and, um, mm. and so, yeah, the things that you've just said now, and then reading the book, those broader questions that come out of the meditations on these authors and the colonial context and that colonial education system, and just yeah, I really. This is a bit of a journey for me reading your book and not <laughs> it's not really a question there either, Nick. But it's just more that yeah, I just wasn't expecting that this would be as on point as it was for picking up a book for this podcast during the pandemic. So I appreciate that.
1: Um Yeah. Well again, I'm really I'm really pleased <laughs> to hear that because I there's a level on which again I I've tried to deal with the the history kind of scrupulously and to say things about that but in a, in a way the you know talk about the lessons of colonial education but it's it's supposed to be you know heuristic and not didactic it's supposed to get people thinking and thinking about these things but also at a certain point feeling yeah kind of re- recommitting to the teaching I suppose I suppose that's where I wanted to end up for me you know it's supposed to be beneficial for me from that point of view too mm-hmm. but connects with the fact that and again this link back to the side in some ways I think that I enjoy writing and thinking, but it's not always easy for me to believe that that's a good way to spend my time. Whereas I think with teaching, I always do believe that, even though I'm aware of the ways in which it's compromised in certain respects, even though I'm aware that I'm involved, among other things, in a in a mechanism of social reproduction and so on in certain respects, and there are all kinds of problems with that. Mm-hmm. But there's 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 there, there's a, there's a core in it that I in which I keep confidence, you know, and in a, in a very oblique. <laughs> And um, you you know, unstraightforward way. I was trying to kind of rearticulate through this work.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, Nick, there are loads of questions that I would love to keep asking you about, and things I (laughs) want to keep talking to you about. But uh, and I and I will outside the context of this interview. That sounds kind of like a threat, doesn't it? (laughs) Like, (laughs) be warned that this conversation (laughs) will continue after this interview. But I'll ask you one more. Within the confines of the interview, which is what are, you, what are you working on now? I mean, I know that it's been a really rough year, but what do you think you'll work on next?
1: So, I'm not someone who's highly prolific, and I don't, I don't even know if I'm going to write another big book, as it were. <laughs> I tend, if, if I do, it'll be because I do some smaller things first. I mean, there are spin offs from this. I mean, I've, I've been writing something, one of the ideas that comes up is the idea of adaptation in relation to that. You know, I mm. phrase about nos très des couloirs and how far you change your material depending on who's, who's in your classroom. You know, at the level of, and, you know, quite what that means is a big question, of course, already, because this is, is it, you know, is it the level of the individual? Is it the level of the kind of overall demographic, et cetera, et cetera? So I'm interested in thinking about that more and in relation to contemporary France as well. And I've been coming at that actually through film, partly through Contes Entre les Murs and Cachiche's L'Esquive. And I even thought of calling it the Civilizing. Mission Comes Home, but then I thought I've had enough of that particular provocation, so it's going to have a different title. But that's one thing. Um, I'm interested in doing more around Feraun, um, partly because it's just a kind of footnote in the book, but I I started studying these textbooks that he produced towards the end of the colonial era. So um, this was the moment when I finally did something that we recognised as archival research by a historian, I think. So they're, they're hard to get hold of, and there's a set of um, teachers' books as well as the... Textbooks, a series of four, which started being published in the colonial area and before he died, obviously, and then they finished being published posthumously but still with his name on. Mm. And um and they give quite an interesting insight into you know what well, again into what he was trying to do, but how teaching was thought of at that time and the uses that were made of literature. And it's actually a surprisingly extremely demanding and highly eclectic corpus that he and his co-authors assembled for what you know for use in primary schools and it's that it's it's pretty extraordinary so that's quite a you know it's a very tightly focused project in a way but with all kinds of interesting questions about what what we study in world literature and so on Mm -hmm. and I'm interested in doing more around colonial education and maybe maybe collaboratively um you know working across history and literature and you know through sort of through micro histories and through that emphasis on the the lived experience of colonialism, but working in teams in such ways as to kind of join up those micro histories into more of a chronological narrative as well, maybe.
0: Well, I'm excited to hear about all of that. Nick, I just want to thank you so much for speaking with about this book and for and for writing it.
1: Well, thank you so much for talking to me about it. I've enjoyed it.